The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We have some loose ends to finish up from last time on Providence. Um, and we just ran out of time. Um, so you all have sheets, I think, here, if you need one, from uh, uh, to, for today. This is on miracles, and we're going to talk about this um, today. So if you didn't get a sheet, it's right up here. Um, but we should finish up on the doctrine of providence. Now, we've been seeing in the doctrine of providence just the sense of the sovereignty of God, uh, the fact that God actively rules uh, over all aspects of his creation. He is a king. He's a mighty king. And he created the universe by the word of his power. Uh, we don't believe, uh, as the deists did, that God created the universe and then steps back and just lets it run. Uh, in a manner of speaking, we could say that God is an interfering God. He gets involved constantly. He's always acting and working. Uh, now, this doctrine of providence that uh, we've supported so thoroughly from Scripture, and there are many other verses that we could use to support these truths, but uh, this doctrine of providence necessarily leads us into some difficulties. And the difficulty specifically has to do with the existence of evil and suffering and pain and grief in this world. And so we've seen that there is a, a problem there. And it's a problem that everybody has to face. Anybody who believes in a God, a powerful God, who can do anything, and uh, many people do believe that, not just Christians, but Muslims and others, all have to deal with how can evil things or hard things or bad things happen in a world that God rules. And so we're dealing with that, that topic. Now, I've given one particular approach or interpretation, which I believe is biblical, and I'd be willing to stand up and support it from Scripture as I've done. But there is at least one other way of looking at these things, what is commonly known as the Arminian point of view. And in this viewpoint, the focal point here is that God does not interfere with human choices. He does not interfere with human will. That's the one thing He will not do. He's going to let you make free decisions. And if he interferes in any way with your will or gets involved in your decisions, then they're not really free decisions on your part. And to some degree, I guess, even to a great degree, you could not really be held accountable for them. Uh, in that case, we're just robots. We're just puppets on a string. And we really don't have any freedom in the matter. It's all coming from God. And so in that case, uh, we really don't see, we couldn't understand how there could be true accountability for actions over which it seems we had no control. And so they're going to emphasize human freedom. They're going to emphasize the fact that God does not um, in, get in, involved in human will. One way of thinking is, you know, you, you look at the Old Covenant, and in the Old Covenant there was uh, the holy place where the priests would enter all the time to do their sacrifices. But then there was the most holy place or the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could enter there, and that only once a year, not without blood, etc., well, in a manner of speaking, the Arminian viewpoint makes the human will a holy of holies into which God will never venture. It's not that he couldn't, mind you. Understand that now. He could. He just chooses not to. And the approach here is that God wants us to choose him. He wants us to love him. Uh, what kind of love relationship would it be if, he, if uh, you know, a prospective spouse or, or suitor, let's say, put a gun to the head of the person and said, you will love me. That's not love to compel it like that. It must come freely of our own choice or it really isn't love. This is the uh, manner of thinking and speaking. And so we, I think, to do justice to the views of many Christians and many theology books and uh, probably most of what you would hear in most Baptist churches, frankly, um, I think it's worthy or reasonable to go through this view of providence. Grudem defines it this way. Those who hold this position maintain that in order to preserve the real human freedom and real human choices that are necessary for genuine human personhood, God cannot cause or plan our voluntary choices. That's a fancy way of saying what I just said. He can't force you or compel you. You must choose on your own. Therefore, they conclude that God's providential involvement in or control of history must not include every specific detail of every event that happens. 
that, that God simply responds to human choices and actions in such a way that his plans are ultimately worked out in the end. Man is the initiator, God the responder. You see that. Do you see that that's different than what I've been teaching up to this point? There, God is the initiator, man the responder. But here in this viewpoint, it is man in his choices, in his free will decisions that is the initiator of everything. And God is just very deft and very skillful at weaving our free choices into his plan somehow. He's able to do that. An extreme view of this uh, is called open theism. And it's kind of taking root. You can find these kind of books, uh, The Openness of God, for example. And this takes and goes, I think, definitely beyond biblical boundaries. The Arminian viewpoint is a reputable uh, viewpoint that can be defended scripturally. I don't hold it myself, but I believe you can be a, a spirit-filled, mature, godly Christian and hold that view. I just think it's deficient and it doesn't line up with some of those verses that we've looked at, like the king's heart is, is a water course in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whatever way he chooses. And not just that, but all over the scripture, God is constantly, effectively influencing human decisions all the time. And frankly, he did it to save my soul. Because if I had my choice in the matter, I'd still be a non-Christian. I proved that for 20 years. But the fact of the matter is that uh, I, it's a reputable biblical position what I've been describing up to this point, although I don't hold it myself and I think it's defective. I think it's spiritually immature because I think it does not line up with all the scriptures that you have to deal with. lines up with some, but not all of them. <coughs> That's fine. But this view that I'm describing to you, the openness of God, is a heretical view. It's not just, it's not just uh, doctrinally deficient. It is heretical. It openly violates teachings that the scripture gives us. It teaches that God so honors human choice that there is no way he could possibly know the future. You understand why that would be. If God, doesn't, if God just totally does not get involved in your choices, they, they literally say God cannot and does not know the future. What God is is very, very quick in his reflexes, you see. He will take any decision you make and he's able to respond very deftly to what you've done. Meanwhile, wrapping it up together with the decisions, the free will decisions of seven billion other people and weaving it together to accomplish his plan. Now, do you see a problem with that biblically? Please say yes. Say you see a problem with this biblically. Yes. Psalm 139. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Yeah, that's hard to explain from the open theist point of view. Other thoughts? Why would this be a defective view? Yeah, that God uh, knew us before the foundation of the world. That's very true. And, and it's not like these are one or two proof texts. Do you understand that all of Scripture unravels at this point? I mean, how many predictive prophecies are there? Think about it. Think of all the predictive prophecies concerning Christ. Is this not one of the greatest evidences that we have of the truth of our faith? Isn't this what Matthew goes to again and again? This was to fulfill what was written in the book of Isaiah the prophet. Or this was, I mean, over and over we have this fulfillment. We have predictions everywhere in the scripture. I mean, think about, we've been, I, I mean, I almost don't know where to begin. The information is so immense. Think about what God said to Moses at the burning bush in which he laid out ahead of time everything that would happen. You're going to go and you're going to show them the signs and the, and the Jewish leaders will accept you and believe you, but Pharaoh will not. And furthermore, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Uh-oh, that doesn't fit too well in, does it? But I'm going to actually violate that holy of holy. I'm going to get into Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to harden it so that I can get the whole ten plagues done. We're going to go right to the end so that he will see the fullness of, of my power. Wow, that's really hard to fit in even to an Arminian point of view. Never mind this open theist point of view, which I've said is heretical. So don't hold it. Don't buy the books except to read them and understand what the flaws are in the argument. Okay, It's out there. And what's really sad is that you're talking about evangelical uh, seminaries like Bethel up there in, in Minneapolis. And you're talking about, um, inter, uh, was it InterVarsity publishing some of these books? Uh, this is it's making inroads and so it's kind of like up to me and other pastors to say watch out look what's happening here they've taken what they think is a biblical value namely the human freedom and established it as the ultimate issue in the universe that God would never violate human freedom and therefore he really can't know the future now why would that be an attractive doctrine why do you think some people are actually attracted 
to this view. Yes? Sure it does. If you if you look on on you know any of these kind of main web pages like MSNs or whatever, they're constantly polling you to get your opinion. You choose. You decide what should what should America do now that you know Baghdad's fallen. And we're constantly being given the options to choose. Or when you go to buy a car, I mean, human choice. It's one of the things we love. It's what freedom is all about in America, right? The ability to make choices. But this particular. Uh, really, you know, false teaching that pushes that just so far beyond biblical boundaries is attractive for other reasons. Think about how I began. Remember, I talked about the problem of evil in the world. What is attractive about open theism concerning the problem of evil? How is it actually attractive to people? God's off the hook. How is he off the hook, so to speak, for evil? He didn't know it was going to happen, and so he really didn't mean for it to happen, but... He'll be with you going through it. He'll stand side by side, best friend in the world. Say, look, it caught me by surprise too, but you know we can work with it. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Okay, you know I wouldn't do that. I love you, and and we'll work with it. Okay, that seems attractive. It's very comforting. I think it's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Why is it terrifying? What else kind of oops can come up? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a really well-meaning pilot who doesn't know what he's doing, you know? And it's like, you know, oh, boy, well, you just narrowly missed that one, you know? But, you know, hey, I, I love you, and I'm here with you, you know? We'll get through it. You know, it's like, oh, my goodness. What's coming next? And what's God going to say? Beats me. I have no idea what's coming next. But we'll be able to cover it, I'm sure. We've done fine up till now. And it totally takes purpose out of any suffering. There's no purpose. Literally no purpose. It just happens. And there's no plan. None of it's happening. Oh, my goodness. So what I'm telling you is that there really is no escaping this problem of evil. I think we ought to just step up to the hard texts, embrace them, accept them, including God hardening Pharaoh's heart, all that, just accept that God does this kind of thing and realize how it actually sweetens suffering. Even when somebody, a loved one, tragically dies, even when you lose something very precious and dear to you, that God is in the midst of it is actually very sweet because it means that ultimately there's a purpose. God is working out a plan. Everything's on schedule. Be at peace. Trust Him and keep walking with Him. To me, that's where it's at. But I, I, get, I get scared about this open theism because of how popular... It, I mean, Evangelical Theological Society, ETS, debating it more or less on equal terms and what they were going to do. For now, they've held it back. Very much like the Methodists uh, debating over homosexual uh, pastors. It's just a matter of time. And, you know, my feeling is, oh, my goodness, what's happened to the ETS? They used to be so strong and committed and evangelical. But they're losing the battle. We've got to stand firm and we've got to say we're not going to make human freedom the idol, the center of everything. We can't do it. We're going to make God's freedom and His sovereignty the center and we're going to try to understand text that way because most cer certainly that's what the Bible does, isn't it? Doesn't it start with God? In the beginning, God? Isn't God the final word too? I mean, it is God's book. And so this is the thing we're looking at. Now let's look. All right, that's, that's the extreme position. But it would be unfair for us to stand here and spend the whole time talking about, about open theism. Just to be unfair for somebody who's not Calvinistic to stand and spend the whole time talking about what's known as hyper-Calvinism in which we have no freedom, no choices. God does everything and we are robots and that's it. That's false too. Every bit is false. So it wouldn't be right to talk about those because those are just wrong teachings. Let's get back more in the center and talk about the so-called Arminian position or the evangelical Arminian position. A key statement here from I. Howard Marshall gives us, it is not true that everything that happens is what God desires. It's a double negative. But in effect, what he's saying is there's lots of things that happen in the world God didn't desire them, didn't want it to happen. Well, I must say that it's a little tricky because I want to understand what you mean by desires. I told you last time there's two levels of God's will. There's one that he expresses his will in terms of his commands. Does he desire that you be active in evangelism? Well, certainly, he commanded it. All right? Does he ordain that you be active every day in evangelism? Well, you probably disproved it sometime in the last month anyway. Does he desire that you obey the Ten Commandments and not just the Ten, but all the commands? Does he desire that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself? Yes. Do you? No. So in one sense, I think we have to agree with I. Howard Marshall, but he means more than I mean when I say that. In effect, he's saying, I do not will this, and I have chosen as a king 
to let things happen through free will agencies that I oppose, disagree, but I'm not going to lift a finger to stop them. Now, that's a little different than the universe I've been talking about the last several weeks. And that's what I. Howard Marshall is discussing. Four major Arminian arguments against the views that we've been talking about up to this point. First of all, they say that the verses that I've cited um, are the exception, not the rule. They're the exception, not the rule. The Arminian view is, is uh, the verses cited as examples of God's providential control are exceptions and do not describe the way that God ordinarily works in human activity. So like when it says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, well, that's an exception. I'm not sure which lot casts he controls and which one he doesn't, but that's what it says. And we would say this is not his ordinary way of acting. Yes, we acknowledge. The Arminian view says we acknowledge that there are sovereignty verses. We just say that they're not the, they're the exception. They're not the rule. He ordinarily allows us to make free choices. That's his usual way. Secondly, the Calvinist view makes wrongly God... Sorry, that's wrong. I don't know how that... Who typed this? must have been me. Anyway, the, <laughs> the Calvinist view wrongly makes God responsible for sin. Now, this is a valid concern, is it not? We want to say what Habakkuk 1.13 says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, you cannot tolerate wrong. We want to say God is holy, he hates sin, he hates evil. And yet it seems confusing when you get into the, the reform position, the Calvinistic position that I've been teaching, that God's like really involved with evil all the time. He's just actively involved and yet he doesn't do it and so it's, it's a little hard to accept. The Arminian view separates God more and just he's frequently, you know, I would say constantly saying, I didn't do it, it isn't me. It didn't come from me. The devil did it. You know, evil Pharaoh did it. Hitler did it. But it wasn't me. I love people. I, I, it's my desire to only bless. I don't do those kinds of things. Now, I'll judge, you know, for sin, but I'm just saying there's so many evil things that a pastor could come along and say, look, God didn't do that. He's, he's not that kind of a God. He wants your infant to still be alive, for example. That kind of thing. I, I, I have the hardest time even teaching this because to me that's so uncomforting. But that's what they do. And they'll say, you know, God's weeping with you and he, and he wants, he wishes that the baby would still be alive. But, but that evil man pulled the trigger and now he's dead. And, and, you know, God doesn't do that. He's not involved at that level. And so they would say, how can God be holy if he decrees that we sin? It's a good question. Clark Pinnock, one of the main spokesmen of this position, said it's simply blasphemous to maintain, as this theory does, that man's rebellion against God is in any sense the product of God's sovereign will or primary causation. Well, um, I'll say this. I don't fully understand the mysterious decrees of God. I know that the theologians have worked a long time on the order of decrees and when he decreed to save and when he decreed that we would sin and, and how he gets involved in that. To me, it's mystery. And I'll tell you what, no matter who is standing up here teaching what their views are, they must ultimately plead mystery, except the open theists. They don't need to plead any mystery. Everything's all, uh, you know, it's all, it all makes sense. Terrifying, it's true, but it makes sense. God is up there, a powerful being who doesn't know what's going to happen next. So there's no real mystery there because he doesn't predict the future. All the mystery's been removed. But the Bible teaches mystery, doesn't it? The Bible teaches that God does accurately, meticulously foreknow decisions you make and your decisions are, in that sense, free. That's a mystery. We don't ultimately know how that works. Thirdly, Arminians are concerned because choices caused by God cannot really be real choices, as we alluded to earlier. Arminian critique of Calvinist view says, if a man uses a lever to move the rock, the lever is not a true second cause, but is only an instrument of the real cause of the movement. We don't say the lever moved the rock. We say the farmer moved the rock. And so it really isn't fair to say God didn't do the evil if he just uses a lever to do it. It's really God that did it. And so also the same thing is true in this point number three, that we can't really say that we chose to follow Christ. God did it in us, and so we didn't really do it. And the same is true the opposite in terms of our sin. How can we be held accountable? So choices caused by God, therefore, cannot be real choices. The Arminian view on how the fall occurred, it occurred because God refuses to mechanize man or force his will upon him. This you've heard many times, I'm sure, in presentations of the gospel, that God wanted to give you the ability to love him freely, to choose him freely. He doesn't want you to be a robot. He doesn't want you to be a machine. However, Arminian theolo theologians hedge a little when it comes to prayer. Isn't that interesting? I, you know, this is, the, this is an amazing phenomenon. Have you ever heard any of them pray for the salvation of someone else? I have. I mean, they will get up and preach free will, but then they're going to pray for salvation. Now, who are they praying to? And doesn't God end up being a little bit like the open theist God saying, I'm doing everything that I can. 
Why are you coming to me with this? I provided Christ. He died on the cross. There's a fountain filled with blood. They need to get to it and get cleaned up. All right? And the church needs to do its job. I've committed to it, the ministry of reconciliation. If they would just get busy and go, we'd see tons of people saved. But they're unfaithful and all that. Look, I'm doing the best I can. There's nothing more I can do. So why are you bringing this to me? Why pray to me concerning this matter? I've done everything I will do. Not everything I can do, mind you, but I'm not going to violate people's free will. And so therefore, I'm not going to do any more. So don't bring this matter to me in prayer. But nobody thinks like that. You still pray for your relatives, friends, and co-workers and neighbors who don't know the Lord. I hope you do. I hope you do because it's biblical to do so. So they pray like reformed people <laughs> saying, Lord, please grant them faith. God, convict them of their sin. Regenerate them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Transform them. Make them a new person. Are these biblical things? Oh, of course they are. Move in them. Move powerfully, God. So they hedge a little bit on the issue of prayer. They acknowledge that in some ways God does influence people as a result of prayer. Exactly. I just think he influences effectively. In other words, he's so good at influencing that he actually gets what he wants. And we still do make the choices. We still make the choices. So, it's a mystery, but finally, number four, the Arminian view encourages responsible Christian living, while the Calvinistic view encourages dangerous fatalism. I really believe with all my heart, this is why uh, the Wesley brothers were Arminian. I think they looked, uh, John and Charles Wesley, they looked at England as a cesspool of immorality, of gin houses and sexual immorality, and he also looked across the English Channel at the French Revolution and the anarchy and regicide, you know, killing a king over there. I mean, it was just the end of the world. And we are not going to do that here. And so they preached morality. The Methodists, that was an insult, actually. You know, it started even before they were converted. You reduce Christianity to a bunch of methods, a bunch of rules and regulations, a bunch of do's and don'ts, careful praying, careful Bible reading, all this. They said exactly, and they just kept right on through, past their conversion into that strict kind of living which can be in many ways supported from Scripture, that kind of strict watching and living. But they're saying very much they did not want England sliding off into that immorality and that wickedness. And they would camp right here on this one and say, exactly. You know, you, you take this sovereignty thing so far, then you're going to sit back and do anything you want. You're not going to evangelize. You're not going to pray. You're not going to fight sin. You're going to be immoral. And so that's the, that's the natural outcome of your theology. Well, is that true? I don't think so. I don't think so. He had a good example right in front of him of George Whitfield, who was a strong Calvinist and was as active uh, as anybody in history on evangelism. No question about it. I don't think it's the case, but this is what they think. So those are four critiques or problems the Armenians find with a strong view of sovereignty that we've been talking about. Well, let's respond to the position. What kind of response can we make? Number one, are the verses cited really exceptions? Or do they represent the way God works ordinarily? The verses cited to show God's overarching providential control are so comprehensive that they cannot represent just a local or exceptional control on God's part. Let me ask a question. Psalm 103, does God cause just some grass to grow so the cattle can eat it? How much of the grass does he cause to grow? Except in my yard. I mean, other than that, I mean, he causes that grass to... I mean, it doesn't make sense to say that these are exceptional things. God sometimes causes the sun to rise in the evil and the good and sometimes he doesn't? Is this God's day for the sunrise? And then the other time he's not in charge of that? It doesn't make any sense. They say, are oh, you just talking inanimate things? Well, I brought... You, I mean, it's in the outline here. The, the doctrines on providence go from inanimate to animate like animals and birds and all that right on through to sentient beings, free will beings like humans. And there's a raft of verses. If you think about, for example... The best examples we have are on, on God's providential control has to do with the death of Christ, right? What kind of free choices were involved in getting Christ dead on a Roman cross? Think about that. Were there any free choices by human beings involved there? Name a few. What are some choices that had to be made? Judas, Judas had to... Yeah, the 30 pieces of silver. Somebody had to decide to be 30 and not 25 or 35. Yes. Um, the priest had decided to decide they wanted to kill him. Yeah. Their hearts had to be hardened. They had to hate. He, they hated him without a cause. That was predicted in Isaiah. They did that. Any other free choices by people? <coughs> Pilate had to be a total wimp, one of the biggest cowards in history. Jesus, Jesus refused. That's right. Jesus 
uh, chose to do it? Absolutely, yes. Peter's, Peter's denial was predicted, you know. Jesus predicted it. And by the way, Jesus' meticulous prediction of Peter's denial is very hard to explain from an open theist point of view. I mean, there's so many details they have a hard time explaining. But Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Yes? Well, they had to kill him on a cross. On a cross. Because he had to be put up on a tree so he could be the curse That's right. He had to be up on a tree, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. He also said, uh, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. By this way, he predicted him the way he would die not be thrown down like stoning would do, but lifted up on a Roman cross. Oh my goodness. How can we possibly say that God is not involved in effectively influencing free decisions to bring about an accurately, carefully predicted death on, by Jesus? It's a paradigm example of how God basically connects the dots through a bunch of prophecies so that everything gets done according to his will. And that's what they said, isn't it, in the book of Acts? They did what your power and will had determined ahead of time should happen. And so we think, all right, how does it work? Well, I'm telling you, ultimately, I don't know. But I do know that they all did it because they wanted to. It was not one of them that said, I'm feeling my arm twisted right now by some powerful being. I don't, I don't, can't explain it. You know, every one of them acted according to what they wanted, what they desired. All of them. And they all will be held accountable. Judas will be held accountable for his money-loving, Christ-hating ways. Uh, he will be, and he was held accountable. So uh, I don't think that these verses, these uh, verses um, really allow any wiggle room. I, it really kind of covers everything. I think Jesus intended to cover everything when he gave examples such as um, a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of your father or even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. If God then clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Or he says, you are worth more than many sparrows. What, he's really speaking from the lesser of the... I mean, if he can do this, if he cares about when a sparrow falls to the ground, does he not care about details of my life? Now, you know from your own life, don't you, how important your, your decisions are along the way? It's, it's really a meticulous thing that happens as your personality gets formed and as decisions come in and affect. Are you saying God stays out of that and isn't involved at all? Does anyone come to Christ out of the blue? Suddenly they hear and they... There's a whole bunch of working that goes on before they finally yield. I think God's involved from A to Z. Absolutely, beautifully. Very much like I've said in the past, like one of those combination locks where you turn and little by little everything gets clicked into place and then... It opens. And God was ruling over that whole thing so beautifully. So I don't think that these are exceptional verses. I don't. Well, I think they're exceptional in another sense. But I don't think that they are the exception, whereas the rule is God stays out and doesn't interfere. I think they actually are meant to give us a sense of what he's doing all the time. And he is doing it all the time. All over the world. Amazing. Secondly, does the Calvinist view of providence really make God responsible for sin? No, is the answer. It does not. It's far too simplistic. God says he hates sin and doesn't cause anyone to sin. Isn't that enough? I think that's sufficient, and I hold that banner. But I don't see any contradiction between that and the fact that God is at the same time sovereign and rules over uh, decisions that we make. God may, but yet God may, and according to Scripture does, use the evil actions of people to accomplish his ends. The cases of Joseph and of Christ are sufficient to prove this. To say that God shuns evil and never does anything in any way with evil would make no sense when it comes to the death of Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Yet the Jewish leaders, Judas and Pilate, are held accountable for their actions. So God is not responsible for wickedness. He's not a wicked being. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So there's nothing inside God of evil, and yet he is a master at using wicked, evil things to accomplish his ends. He uses even the wrath of men to praise him. To me, that's glorious. He can even use my sin to accomplish great things. And yet, I am disciplined for it, held accountable for it, etc. And I, I'm grateful for that. I'm glad that we can't mess it up. Because you know what? We would, wouldn't we? Oh, come on, be honest. We would mess it up. We'd mess it up huge. So, number three. Can choices ordained by God be real choices? A simple question for Arminians. Where does Scripture teach that choices ordained by God are not actual real choices? So I lay a challenge there. Show me how those two cannot coexist. They are real choices, every last one of them.
To me, the best example, and I shared this earlier, I've shared it with others before, and I'll share it again because I think it's a good one, is of the resurrection of Lazarus. When Christ spoke to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out, he was giving him a command, wasn't he? He was giving him a command. At the same time, he did something that not one other person in this room can do. What did he do? He imparted life to Lazarus, raised him from the dead. We can't do that. He can. He's got that power. Okay, Lazarus is alive. He's now a free will being, so to speak. He's heard a command. He has a choice, doesn't he? Well, let's look at his options. Okay, Christ out in the sunshine, good friend, going to have a party tonight at Martha and Mary's house, wonderful time. Got that on the one side. Stay in the tomb with the other dead people with the bad air and the grave clothes and a rock bed. Christ, sunshine party, good friends. Stay in the tomb, laying down. Hmm, what will I do? Did Lazarus, of his own free will, get up and come out into the sunshine and be with Jesus? Yes or no? Yes, yes he did. Is there any merit in discussing it? Did he boast about it that night at the party? Oh, I know, Jesus raised me from the dead, but hey, I chose to come out of that tomb. <laughs> I made that choice. So, Jesus did all that, and I'll give him credit for that, but I made the choice. I came out. And think how embarrassed Jesus would have been if I hadn't chosen to come out. <laughs> Lazarus, come out. I'm in here. You've got to come get me. Send some people in to get me. It doesn't make any sense. Now, actually, it's deeper than you may think because what happens is you say that's no real choice. Well, I think that the, the fact of the matter is rejecting God is no real choice. It's insanity to turn your back on such a loving, powerful creator. Why would we do that? And so what God does in saving us is he heals us to see what's true is really true. God is lovely, wonderful. I want to be with him. I hate sin that's kept me from him. And so we do choose, no question. But what came first? God's choice, God's action, God's power to heal me, to call me, to raise me to life. And then I came, then I moved out. So I don't think they are mutually exclusive. I can have them both. God's activity, my free choice. And out I come of my own free will. I believe God is the most persuasive being in the universe. He gets what he wants. He knows what moves you. He's been studying you a long time. And he knows what sensory input around you will move you to a course of action. And so it happens. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think we can have both sovereignty and freedom at the same time and responsibility. Andy, I want to yes. follow up on that by saying that uh, with that last statement that you made, that we have to, in order to get this all, begin to comprehend this, have to realize that God chose where, when, how we would be born. And he imparted to us everything that we have. Mm -hmm. And that's also important so that when he put us where he wanted us, mm -hmm. We, with the influences that would come on us, would mm -hmm. make the choices that we make that he ordained. That's right. We, as you said with Lazarus, make the choice, but mm -hmm. he brings the situation around mm -hmm. that we think, mm -hmm, okay, I want to do this. Well, that's what he wanted you to do. That's right. And, and do you realize, if what you're saying is true, do you realize how unbelievably complicated this all is? I mean, it's just so high above us that he can actually do this kind of thing. So that we are just making free choices all the time, and yet he is right on schedule influencing and accomplishing and bringing things about, all of them according to his will. That's amazing to me. And so I think that's why I said it's far too simplistic to say God, you can't have both God's sovereignty and freedom. You can't have them both. I think you can. I just don't think we can understand it. It's just so far above us what he's actually doing. He is so active in everything, so persuasive, so effective. Things are going on so much all the time. I think you could write a hundred volume series on a single hour of human history. I really think you could. I think you, you could write, you take one hour and look at what God was doing in all the tribes and nations and peoples and languages all over the world. That's just one hour, folks. This has been going on for thousands of years. It's amazing. It really is. So God's just at a higher level. His mind is bigger than ours. He can do things we can't do. So why would we violate clear teachings of Scripture to try to uphold human freedom? Why would we do that? Why don't we uphold those clear teachings of Scripture? And uphold also that we are responsible for our decisions, that we're not robots, and go live righteously and upright in this world and obey his commands. To me, that's, I think, the biblical way.
And that leads me very clearly to number four. Does a Calvinistic view of providence encourage either a dangerous fatalism or a tendency to live like Arminians? Or even just to encourage us to sin? You know? Ah, you know, I, once saved, always saved. God's sovereign, all that. doesn't matter how I live. Oh, boy. Uh, you ought to come on a Thursday Bible study in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews will blister that way of thinking. You can't survive that way and read the book of Hebrews. That's not the Christian life. Christian life says uh, God is holy and living inside you and he will not tolerate that way of thinking. If you get high-handed in your sin, you will feel the disciplining rod of God very quickly. If you're weak and stumble in many ways, like it says in the book of James, God is gracious, patient, and gentle with you as you repent and confess and continue to strive to put that sin to death. But if you become arrogant and high-handed and just sin because God's going to forgive, well, you'll see what happens. Uh, he will deal vigorously with you. That's what Hebrews 12 is all about. If you're a child of God, if not, if you're not a child of God, he'll just give you over to it, which is the worst thing that could ever happen. God just give you over to your sin. So does this view actually encourage fatalism? No, not at all. It encourages active reliance on the God who's running the show an active reliance on a person who's got a plan and we're trusting him to work out his plan. Does it encourage sin? Not at all. Does it encourage living like Arminians? Well, I don't think so. I'm, I don't believe that. And so I'm desiring every day to put sin to death and to walk in holiness and to live uprightly and to rely totally on the sovereign God who's making it possible for me to do that. That's the way I look at things. Um, additional objections to Arminian position, a couple of them, and then I'll take questions and we'll go on to miracles. I'm not doing any tonight, I don't think, um, but we will discuss, discuss them theologically anyway. I wish that God would work in a mighty way and we should be praying that he will. On Arminian view, how can God know the future? We've already talked about that. Very, very tough question. How can he really know? Now they say, it's a mystery. You give me mystery at this point, I give you mystery at that point. And they say that God doesn't, does know the future, but I don't know how. Fair enough. There's mystery somewhere. On an Arminian view, how can evil exist if God did not want it? Good question. On an Arminian view, how can we know that God will triumph over evil? Very good question, especially for open theists. They don't know, do they? God's going to say, look, you know. And what is the difference in the unanswered questions? What do I mean by that? Calvinists must say they do not know the answer to the following questions. Number one, exactly how God can ordain that we do evil willingly and yet God not be blamed for evil. We cannot answer that question. I don't know. Secondly, exactly how God can cause us to choose something willingly. How God can effectively cause us to choose something of our own wills. I don't understand that either, but I just say he's able to persuade. Arminians must say they do not know the answer to the following questions. Number one, how can God know the future if he absolutely will not influence human free choices? Number two, why does God allow evil at all in his universe when it is against his will and he will not use it for his purposes? What, I mean, what's the point then? If he has nothing to do with it and doesn't want it and just would only have it out, then you know, how, why did he even come in at all then? There's no reason for it. It's just some run, thing running through the universe that has no purpose at all. And number three, will God ultimately triumph over evil? Will the eternal state really be free from evil if God will never interfere with free moral choices? Here's something terrifying. If God maintains the same approach to us, how do you know you won't fall from heaven? I mean, that's a tough question. How do you know you really do have eternal life? Even after judgment, even on, you know, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining under the sun, and then we fell again. I mean, oh my, that's just that it's even possible makes it not heaven. You know, I don't want to ever do it again. I want to be free forever from sin. And so I'm saying if God's going to maintain the same approach, the free, the pure free will approach, how do you know you're not going to fall 10,000 years in? Or that the devil, there's another devil won't come up. One of the other angels won't lead a revolt and will get sucked in. Wow. The Arminian position. Yeah. How do they respond when you ask them how they feel about this book? Well, one of the things I've noticed in discussing this with folks that don't share my viewpoints is that they don't generally actually explain the verses that I ask them to explain. They say, what about this verse over here? Mm -hmm. I say, well, all right, hang on a second. All right, just methodologically, if we can stick to this one verse and give the best explanation we can for this one, then I will, in fairness, try my best to explain your favorite verse, okay? But I remember when I was teaching in Matthew 11 about, about uh, Tyre and Sidon would have repented if they had had the same miracles. Somebody said, yeah, well, what about, you know, uh, whosoever will, let him come. I said, well, I love whosoever will, will come. That's a great verse, but can we please, just for a moment, stick over here and try to explain 
the Tyre and Sidon would have repented if they'd seen Jesus' miracles and yet Jesus chose not to do the miracles there? Can you give me a good explanation for that? No. Well, that's an issue then. We need to stick to the verses and explain them. And then we'll try our best. And this is why I believe in Reformed theology as a good system overall. Now, all these are systems. We're trying our best to understand verse after verse after verse after verse of Scripture. There's a lot of them, aren't there? <laughs> and each one have 50 ideas connected with them. And so little by little, we're trying to put it together, aren't we? And that's a good thing to do. People say, oh, we shouldn't have a system. We should. Well, that doesn't make any sense. A system is just part of having a memory and a thought pattern, Right? So little by little, we're going to try to put together a way of looking at the Bible, a way of looking at the world. And so what I'm saying is I want my, as best as I can to understand all the verses, not just some of our favorites, all of them, including whosoever will let him come. And I think I've tried to do that. I think I believe whosoever will let him come. I'm just trying to understand how they willed to do something they didn't will to do all that time before. I find that God effectively persuaded. He changed their nature. And so they chose something different. That's the way I explain it. But I, I find, actually, Mac, that they don't have a good explanation for, you know, the king's heart is like a watercourse in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he chooses. They don't, they don't have a good answer for that. It's a very uncomfortable way for an Arminian to think. That's the very thing God would never do, is get his hands into someone's heart and turn it whatever way he chooses. So I, I, my answer is I don't think they have a great answer. I looked in Wesley. Wesley never preached on... Uh, uh, or gave extended uh, exegesis on Romans 9. God's sovereignty and salvation. Just stayed away from it. Don't know. I don't. It just doesn't fit. Well, <laughs> it's in there. So we want to do that. Any other questions before we move on to miracles? Yeah, this is two different ways that we've talked about understanding his will. We have God's will of decree... I say it that way because I don't know how to pronounce decretive or decretive will or whatever. So I say will of decree in which he effectively says, this is the way it's going to be. I decree that and so it is. God says, let there be light. And guess what? No one argued back. There just was light. You know, isn't that something? God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's will of decree. I believe my salvation was included in will of decree. All right? Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. So I want to guarantee. I want to know I'm going to heaven. That's will of decree. Okay. Permissive will is where God uh, sends the Ten Commandments down uh, with Moses and says, this is how you should live. Okay, Live this way. This is a good way to live. This is my will, that you should have no other gods besides me, that you should not commit adultery, that you should honor your father and mother, you should obey this. That's his permissive will. Why do I say that? He's made his will clear but he is not decreeing it, and so therefore it's getting disobeyed all over the place. Those are the two definitions. Is that what you had in mind? All right. In order to go through and say, this is will of decree, this is permissive will, that's a little more challenging. Is that what you're getting at? Or? Yeah, and people people point to, for example, the fact that that Israel asked for a king and said, no, it wasn't in my will for it, but I'll give it because you ask it. But so you may know what an evil thing you did. Then Samuel you know, calls on the Lord and he sends a huge storm and they're all cowering and say, boy, we really blew it asking for a king. And so they, they cite that as a good example of how God will give you what you want even though it's not in his will for you. Is that what you're thinking of? Yes. Okay. Well, I think that's exactly where it, where it works. You see, God's will of decree is really pretty simple. He says it is. End of story. All right? But it's in God's permissive will where he's constantly letting people do evil things that are clearly not his express will because he already commanded them not to do it. great example is you shall not murder and Jesus is dead on the cross. He didn't do anything wrong, so it's nothing but murder. That's clearly a violation of God's expressed will and yet it was clearly his decreed will. So actually, that's exactly how history unfolds is by bunches of permissive wills happening and God weaving them together sovereignly to accomplish this incredible tapestry of human history. And he keeps hitting his decreed will things. They keep getting done one after the other. People keep getting saved. Isn't that exciting? Now, I can't fully understand. That's just too high for me. His ways are not my ways. They're just higher than me. But he's, you know. Now, if you're saying, does it go down to what clothes I wear? We talked about this last time. What shirt I put on? 
Well, you tell me. Does it include what you ate for breakfast? Does God decree what you eat for breakfast? I don't think so, but I think he works with it. You know, it's not insignificant what you had for breakfast. Right? Well, what did you have for breakfast? What did you have for breakfast, Steve? Eggs and bacon. Eggs and bacon. See? God ordained that you eat eggs and bacon for breakfast. I, I don't understand the level of that. And some people say, well, how about a spouse, for example? You know? Is there just one decreed person for me, or, or did I have freedom in the matter? And Well, listen, I get up at wedding time, and what do I say? What God has joined together, let man not separate. Isn't that way, the way we, we're supposed to think that way? This was my person. This was the one that God joined me with. God has joined together. I'll carry this back to wait. This, this creature that God has made, me, you, when you think of that brain he gave us, I think he expected us to use that brain. Mm-hmm. Of course, his uh, desire mm-hmm. was to use it for his glory. That's right. That's where we fall off. Right. But he gives us, uh, we got leeway. We got leeway. He, he, gives us, he gives us freedom. He gives us a brain. But his, his brain, so to speak, and we can speak that way because it speaks of God's hand and his eyes and his mouth, it's just infinite. It's just, he's just playing at a higher level than we are. He's just doing things that we, we, you know, that we can't un- understand. And so what you eat for breakfast and who you marry, my goodness, of course who you marry is important. And so it, I think it happens according to God's will. What God has joined together, let man not separate. And yet there's all kinds of freedom. See, I almost gave up on her. You know, I, this is not reflecting on my own. Chrissy's not here, but that's not what I'm saying at all. You know, I'm just speaking as one. I mean, but you could say, boy, that relationship was hanging tenuously, right? Was it really? I mean, you think about, for example, the descendant, the descendants from David right on through to Christ. There was a time that one of them was a little baby, the only one left hiding behind a curtain with a nurse while someone was hunting him down to kill him. I mean, hanging by a thread. How strong was that thread? I'm telling you it's unbreakable. (coughs) Stronger than any substance, if you could speak that way, that there's ever been. That baby was not going to die. Couldn't be. Jesus wasn't going to die at Herod's henchmen's swords. It wasn't going to happen. Was not going to happen. So that's unbreakable. Yeah. Well, I tried to couch it. I don't know if you remember in the outline. I said, in what sense is it free, but in what sense is it really not free? So how would you how would you guard in the understanding of free will? That's right. Yeah, it's not independent of God and His choices. That's right. And it's also, as we mentioned, not free of your character. Right? You're going to choose according to who you are. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. So you're going to choose. And if you're a wicked, evil, greedy, selfish, hypocrite like Annas or Caiaphas, the high priest that put Jesus to death, you're going to act a certain way. Now, do you think it was an accident that those were the kinds of people that were ruling when Jesus' trial came at that moment? No. And so God let them do what was their nature, but it was no accident they were sitting on the throne at that moment. Christ must die. Yes? Um, if God is, um, I'll talk from a Calvinist point of view, mm-hmm. um, perhaps you can help me understand um, two things. Progressive sanctification. And he's, a, he's a great influencer. Mm-hmm. He could get me to be perfect, but sure. it, it doesn't happen. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm better now than I, better, quote unquote, now sure. than I was. That, and then, secondly, the person that <clears throat> may experience that he's set in sin. Mm-hmm. Should that is that are those the person who's being progressively sanctified and the person who has this besetting sin? They should be speaking another work of grace. Well, I'm just they careful about another work of grace. They yes, should be. I yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, all right, let me deal with the first. She asked, uh, "What about progressive sanctification? You know, somebody growing. Could not God make us holy instantly? Isn't that about what you're?" Well, I'm saying, of course, He can make us holy instantly, and I'm looking forward to it. It's called glorification, and it's going to happen at the moment of death or at the moment that we see Christ face to face at the time of his second coming. We will be, boom, instantly transformed to be just like Christ, for we shall see him as he is. And so we will, that he can do that. The question is, why doesn't he do that right now? Well, evidently, God wants you to fight with sin for a while. It's in his will that you put on the full armor of God and take your stand against the devil's schemes. He wants to see you do it. He, he, he wants to test you 
like he did with uh, Abraham. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. He wants to see Abraham do it. He wants to see him pull out the knife and go and say, well, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son. He wants to see us fight sin. He wants to see us grow up and learn to trust him. He wants us to actually have an experience in which we come personally to revile sin with all of our heart. And I, I find that happening as I wrestle and struggle in sanctification, reading scripture, and I just hate sin far more now than I ever did before. And I love righteousness and holiness. And I don't think we're going to lose that history. We're going to remember. Not reluctantly, or else heaven wouldn't really be heaven. But we'll re- remember with a sense of glory what God did. So he has ordained progressive sanctification for us. He's also ordained that there be some give and take between his will and our will in this matter so that you can wake up and not have your quiet time and go have a lousy day. You can. Have you ever done that? <laughs> Once or twice, maybe. Okay? And, and what happens at the end of a lousy day? Doesn't the Lord come somewhat by the Spirit and say, you see? See? And so we are being disciplined in a way. There's a direct relationship between disciplined and discipled. We're being trained. And so the next morning you say, Lord, I don't want to do that again. I want to get up early and make a sacrifice and have a good prayer time with you and a good time in the Bible because I don't want to do yesterday again. We've done that enough. And so I think that's why he has ordained the idea of progressive sanctification. Now, it's interesting. I remember once I found a formula and it works, I thought. It's got to. It's right there in the Bible. It says it is God's will that you be holy. You be sanctified, right? Be holy because I am holy. It actually says it is God's will that you be sanctified. It's in 1 Thessalonians. It's stated straight out there. It also says if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So I can take any besetting sin and I can just simply ask him to remove it tomorrow or today for that matter. Why wait till tomorrow? Let's get rid of it today. And I prayed that prayer. And you know what happened? God said, uh, put on the full armor of God, stand firm, put sin to death by the power of the Spirit. Fight the good fight of faith. That's what he told me. So how did the formula fall apart? You weren't sure what God's will was. Was God's will to instantly remove by his power that besetting sin immediately? Was it his will? The answer is no. It was not his will. And so therefore, I did not pray according to his will. I'm going to say you, you pray with the center of his will, not yeah. what I will. See, what is God's answer on besetting sin? Put on the full armor of God by the power of the Spirit. Put it to death. Get busy. You're saying, but that's suffering. That hurts. I have to stand under the temptation. Didn't Jesus? He suffered when he was tempted. Hebrews 2.18. 2, I want to avoid suffering. Can't I have an instant fix? No, you can't. You have to stand firm and put sin to death and be courageous. That is God's will for us. And it may not be what we... I think we would have gone a lot easier on ourselves, don't you think? We would have like chosen come to faith, instant glorification. Why the progressive sanctification? Why three steps forward and two steps back? Why? I mean, it seems so inefficient, doesn't it? And I'll tell you what, I've thought about that, the inefficiency of the church. We are really poor building material. I'm going to talk about that on Sunday. God has built a kingdom out of bruised reeds and smoking flaxes. He's built a kingdom out of people like us. And he's committed to us the ministry of reconciliation so that we should take the gospel to the ends of the earth. How inefficient is that? Give it to the angels, don't you think? How long would the angels take to evangelize the unreached people groups? Would they be uh, afraid to share their faith with their friends? Would they be intimidated in any way? Could God give the eternal gospel to an angel to proclaim? Yes, he does it in the book of Revelation. He could do that. Why did he not? I've actually come to the conclusion that God planned in a certain level of inefficiency so that the world would not end too early and I wouldn't get a chance to be born. Do you see what I'm talking about? Suppose all of the elect had been brought in, all of the, you know, the gospel had been preached all over the world by the second century, the job was done world ends you don't get born and you don't get born and you don't and you don't and none of us get born none of us the world ends right there and so god planned in a certain amount of inefficiency all right the church would be somewhat unfaithful 
in our and is that right that we were unfaithful not at all and so he sends the winds of revival and conviction and we go out and we are convicted and we move and so more and more people get saved and so it spreads and it's been exploding over the last 150 years it's really moving now it's exciting but so is population too i mean wow i mean but it's and i'm saying it's incredible to me that god in his sovereignty has allowed 20 centuries of church history not just two aren't you grateful he did Raise your hand if you're grateful that it didn't all end in the second century. I'm very, very grateful because I'm looking forward to seeing heaven. And God knew it and wanted me born. And not only that, wanted me born again. These things are too high for me. I don't understand it all. How can they be guilty for not evangelizing? And the church was consistently weak and ineffective in evangelism. Why do you think he kept bringing these pagans to come crash in like the Vikings? I mean, he brings the Vikings and they come crashing in and just destroying monasteries, destroying, plundering, looting, whatever. Century later, they're Christians. How did that happen? Because the church wasn't going out. So God brought them here, right? Could that be happening with the Muslims? We're not going out, so God brings them here. They come militarily to plunder. The gospel conquers them within 100 years. That's a little scary, I know, for us Americans, but you know, if we don't get busy and get effective and go out and reach the gospel, reach the Muslim world, he'll bring them here. He'll bring him here. But all I'm saying is that he's got it worked out. He knows what he's doing. That's exciting. So in four minutes, we're going to do miracles. Any other questions on Providence? <laughs> that would be a miracle. You know, I think it's been a good study on Providence. I didn't think we'd go this long on it. But but I, I tell you what, I, I would urge you, in the sheets that I gave you, there's eight, eight good things to keep in mind for somebody who's suffering. Remember that? Look over them. Let's go over them one more time. We'll finish with that. We'll do miracles, God willing. Not next week, by the way, folks. Next week is so-called Holy Week, Thursday. We've got a Monday, Thursday service, 7 o'clock. Just a worship service, Lord's Supper, a little preaching. Um, just a simple service like we do every year. Um, but no acts next Wednesday. Also, right after I get done, for any that are interested in outreach, just go down to the parlor and there will be some names uh, that you can take and go <coughs> visit sometime this week. But let's look uh, finally at... Uh, where is it? Page what? Five. Yeah, page five. Practical ministry of the suffering. It is so good for you to absorb these eight points before the tragedy happens, before you lose the loved one or before you get struck with cancer or something happens. Number one, God only intends ultimate good for his chosen people, even if his means to that end are very difficult, very painful. So all things work together for good. In the end, that's his plan. Number two, God is very compassionate. He does not stand far off from the suffering ones, aloof and satisfied that his plan is running perfectly. He sends relief to the suffering ones to help them through. He's not dispassionate. He is very compassionate. Number three, God is willing to put his chosen ones through immense suffering and can even seem quite harsh in so doing. The best example, as I said, is of Jacob, who for all those years wept over his dead son Joseph and he wasn't dead at all. And God could have told him but chose not to so that his plan would be perfected. So God's willing to put us through really terrible suffering to accomplish his end. But is it greater or less than the suffering of Christ on the cross? Far less. And so if he is willing to put his own son through that, he can put us through some very hard things. Number four, God has power at any moment to alleviate all your suffering and bring incredible joy. He can instantly take away a besetting sin as we just talked about. He can do that. If he chooses not to, it's only because he's working out something higher and better. Okay, he has that power to do that. Number five, this world is temporary. I've got to write that and put it somewhere. We're only passing through quickly. No matter what suffering we go through, Paul says it's light and momentary suffering compared to what we're going to. It's just temporary. And the suffering God puts us through is brief and barely worth comparing God's ultimate with God's ultimate good intentions toward us. Christ's resurrection forever changes earthly suffering for us. Number six, our focus should be on heaven and on God's eternal plans, not on our immediate circumstances. We should be thinking about him. Number seven, we should be open and trusting in prayer, committing our grief and pain to him as the psalmist model very well for us in many places. They are very open when they're hurting. They're saying it hurts. It's tough. I don't like this. This is grievous to me. And we should do that with each other. But not question God and begin to change our theology and invent things like open theism to protect us. That's one thing we must never do. More Bad theology is coming through the door of human suffering than any other way. We go through human suffering and we change our theology. That's horrible. Number eight, our highest loyalty should not be to our own health, prosperity, or loved ones, but to God, his kingdom, and his purposes. Ultimately, we should be willing, gladly willing to sacrifice any earthly blessing for God's glory. I did something years ago 
I basically went through all of the members of my body, my hands, my left hand, my right hand, my eyesight, my ears, my speaking ability, my intestines, my legs, my loved ones. I named them by name. I said, all of these are yours for you made them. If you choose that it's better that I lose any one of these faculties or any one of these things for the advance of your kingdom, help me, but I'm gladly willing to give it up because you gave your only son for me and these things are yours anyway. I'm glad. Uh, can you say that to God? That's tough, isn't it? I mean, ahead of time. Say it ahead of time. I'm willing that these things should happen. And I promise with your grace and your help not to lay blame on you if any of these things should happen. I'm willing to sacrifice them if your plan would be fulfilled. So those are eight things to keep in mind before the suffering happens. Keep the sheet. <laughs> look at it. Write it down. Keep it in mind. Any final questions or comments before we close in prayer? Do you understand it all? No. That's no, no, a, a mystery. All right, let's close in prayer. Jim, would you, would you close in prayer? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.